Go ahead and grab a seat and make yourself comfortable. We not only not have a band up here now, we won't have musical worship like we typically do at the end of the service. Um, one of our people, one of our volunteers uh, came down COVID positive about Wednesday or Thursday. Um, so he is quarantined now for a couple weeks. And then we had another volunteer wake up this morning with a couple of the symptoms not tested yet they scheduled a test for this morning it just got to where we said it's not <laughs> let's maybe not the best day to crop dust the room with our aerosol breath right so maybe we can with, with cases skyrocketing maybe we could be a little bit wise I'll tell you I'm fine with that if you look at the New Testament church you see a church that is shape-shifting to match the context, to match the needs of the people, to match the rhythms of the people. You'll see the church gathering in homes, eating together. You'll see the church in the synagogues. You'll see Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 talk about how some bring a hymn, some bring a prophecy, some bring a word, some bring an encouragement. So we catch some major things. And that is in a service, we want to make sense for the people that are coming in. We want to contribute from different directions and different people, and you'll see that at the end of this service as we do something a little bit different. But what I love about the diverse church and how we can shapeshift is the resiliency of it. The resiliency. The idea, the idea that a church service is a composed of a sermon under 30 minutes in five songs and then out we go, that's a construct we came up with. That would probably be foreign to anyone transported from the New Testament to today. They probably wouldn't understand what we call a service. Probably wouldn't make them mad, but they probably wouldn't understand it very much. So we get to celebrate the same versatility. I'm happy to do it. And that's why it will be a little bit different today. But if you have a Bible, we're going to jump into the sermon. And we're going to be in Philippians 4. I know you're thinking, we are never going to get out of this book of Philippians. We are stuck in this book until... Luke just runs out of sermon. Listen, we've only got a couple left in this book. I'm not in any hurry to move out of it, though. I love the book of Philippians. I'm having a great time with it. Today, though, I've really been waiting for this passage today. While you're turning there, I don't know if you know this, and I don't know if you use emojis whenever you're texting back and forth. I'm not judging you if you do. I might judge you a little bit, but not a bunch, okay? But emojis are 20 years old. Oh, actually, actually, uh, technically, they go back into the late 80s on some Japanese phones, but emojis have been around for a long time. But some of you, if you're my age or older, you probably remember when everyone started using them. We went from the colon and the parentheses to a little smiley face, right? A little smiley face. Now, <laughs> there are hundreds of different emojis. In fact, there are over 3,304, according to the Unicode standard, different emojis. Cowboy hat? Cactus, hockey puck, smiley face, tear, heart, whatever you want. There's anything in the world you can dream up, there is an emoji for it. And they are so ingrained and cemented in our pop culture today that Sony Pictures made a movie that grossed $250 million. That'll buy you 10 private jets. $250 million on, wait for it, emojis. Just different faces, emojis. I'm sure the celebrities were the voices behind them, but they're just emojis. They didn't really crack the code or anything, but it, people are fascinated with it because it's become a language of sorts to us today. We're like Egyptians with, with the hieroglyphics, right? And so instead of using words, we use little pictures to express our emotion today. You could probably tell 
I'm a little bit more like Ron Swanson when it comes to texting, right? So meaning I will never use an emoji. I've texted back and forth with many of you. You've never seen an emoji come from my side, right? Um, I might do an LOL if I'm getting real loose. If I think it's real funny, you might get a ba-ha-ha, but you'll never see a cactus or a smiley face or a heart or anything. I just can't bring myself to do it. And what's interesting is with all the beginning or all the, the variety in emojis, it all started with one. As you can guess, it's the happy face. That's the original emoji. But today, and this is fascinating to me, it is still the most commonly used emoji in the world. At 10% of every emoji is the happy face. Second place at 6% is the heart. I think this is interesting because happiness is not the most felt emotion we have. Not even close. Not even 10% of the time do we have a happy face expressing our emotions. I don't imagine the Apostle Paul would have been the kind of guy that would have used an emoji, but we'll pretend that he does today, right? If he did, he's going to show us in today's passage that it would have been the happy face, the smiling face, because he found a place of content, spirit, joy, and bright peace in every circumstance, in all circumstances. That is what this letter is centered on. That's why they call this the epistle of joy, the letter of joy. The one thread that pulls the whole tapestry together is nothing more than the fact that you and I can have joy and peace in every circumstance, in every moment. Paul gives us the secret to this today, joy in every moment, which is good news because I looked up on, online from different experts and groups what the secret of happiness was. Just go ahead and Google it in. It's fascinating. Secret of happiness, right? Because that's what you pay me the big bucks to do, right? But, and I got exactly what you thought I would get. Everybody's guessing. Some really weird things were said. Some things that I don't necessarily hate. But everybody's guessing. None of it was secretive. None of it was the true secret. So this is the big question I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we travel through this passage. If your life's most felt emotion could be expressed by an emoji, what would it be? Would it be the smiling one? Would that be the most honest one? I mean, all the time? All the time? This is what the word says to us in Philippians 4. We're going to be in verse 10. This is the word of the Lord for us today. We will see Christ very clearly in this passage. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay. Backstory, and we hit this really hard when we started the letter. What had happened was, is this church of Philippi that Paul loved, and they loved Paul, they sent him some supply. It's likely money, some sort of money. But they sent it with Epaphroditus, who would be a heavy encouragement to Paul, right? And what Paul is doing here is he's thanking them for this gift and the encouragement. But at face value, it sounds like Paul's throwing a little bit of a jab. It sounds like he is maybe saying that they were a little too lazy to get this done in time. Like they took their sweet time. That's why he says that now at length, in the passage, that now at length could be misunderstood to be read as 
Finally glad you found time in your busy schedules to scratch up enough dough and finally get a guy that's willing to carry it on out to me, right? But that's not what he's saying. I mean, the whole beauty of this passage, this famous passage, and it is famous, is that virtually Paul is just making sure that no one misunderstands him. He's clearing up a misunderstanding. What he's really saying is, is I know you guys were wanting to help me a lot sooner. You had the heart for it. Didn't have the means for it. But eventually got some finance and you got Epaphroditus and you're able to put them together and get them here and I'm thankful. This is one of the questions that I have that I'm sure is never going to be answered in this lifetime. <laughs> Paul either wrote this or he was speaking out loud as somebody else was a scribe and wrote it down. I don't know why at what point he didn't just say, listen, that didn't come out right. Let's go back and try that statement over again. That's going to be misunderstood. That's likely to be misunderstood. Delete. Moving on. He doesn't do that. He just keeps rolling forward. He just keeps talking. Right? I'm actually glad he did this. I mean, there's a lot to learn here. It taught me a ton. In fact, there's actually a second opportunity for him to be misunderstood here because it could be construed and was construed by many in the church that Paul is all about the cash. I'm finally glad the check made it for you, Paul. Always about the money, Paul, which is why he launches into why he is not in need of anything, how he is content and everything. You see, Paul is highly sensitive to how he might be misunderstood. Mature people do that. Mature people discern how they might be heard or misheard. It's always going to be the immature person that says, hey, listen, if that's what you heard me say, that's on you. You could put it in a pipe and smoke it. I don't even care. I don't even, that's an, it sounds tough and it sounds independent. It is not. It is immature. It's immature. We owe this passage to Paul's intense care for clarity. Focus on clarity. He wants them to see Christ in him. And right now in this moment, it means him going the extra mile to make sure that he is understood. We could learn a lot just from this alone, especially in a world where we are texting and emailing, where so much of the intent behind our words is missed. We're always talking past each other right now, constantly doing that. It's important that we spend the energy and we invest the time to make sure that we are understood and that we understand others. This doesn't even have anything to do with the main idea of the text. I just thought it would be good to even point to. Before we move on, what scuffles do you find yourself in right now with somebody? Where is there turbulence in your relationships that is just the result of being lazy with being understood properly? Where in your current uh, running into people, your current collisions, could it be possible for you to say, hey, listen, what I think I understand you saying is this, or can you say that differently so I understand you better? Or this is what I'm trying to say. I don't think you understand what I'm trying to say. Is there some laziness in that? And that's just simply why you have discord. Paul is leading us in a very different direction here. Now, to fix this second misunderstanding is really the point of the text. He goes into how he doesn't need their money to be content, to be happy. He was as content as if he had a billion dollars already. Not only was he content, he's telling us he has a secret to it. And that we want. I mean, can you imagine not being any happier if you were a billionaire than if you were broke? Can you imagine if your emoji didn't change? <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine being the same amount of happy. I, I, I'm still convinced on most days, I'm still convinced that more money equals being more content more satisfied. 
I might even spiritualize it and say, because I could take that money and plant more churches. I could take that money and we can gift it to a hospital. I could take that money, invest in broken lives. I could pay off student loans. We could do some crazy, but even in that, I'm wanting to be more satisfied. Even in that, I'm feeling more content because I'm able to do those things. Or can you imagine not being any more satisfied with perfect health than if you were riddled with cancer in a hospital bed? Again, I can't. In all honesty, I'm not there. I most often think that being healthy would satisfy me more than being in a wheelchair. I think my emoji would change. I think my sense of joy would leak. Paul's joy was detached from what kind of a day he was having. It was detached from the mood he was in at the moment. Joy belonged to him. Peace, happiness belonged to him. And he wrote above the circumstances of the day. But our first parents, when they left the garden, they left the garden broken. And just like our first parents, we have it in us as well. We carry that brokenness with us. For Adam and Eve, for them to be content was to have the fruit from a tree that was forbidden. That was the secret to their happiness. Okay, The secret to their happiness was to maybe be a god rather than worship a god. It was really godlike autonomy. That's what they wanted in Genesis 3. Like them, today our trees look a little different, but there's always something that conveys to you that it, we'll just say it, I-T, it will make you happy. It, if you had it, would make you satisfied, would make you content above all things. And listen, there are a ton of suitors for our hearts. I think it's common in Christians that Jesus is good, we probably think Jesus is good. We wouldn't be here for the most part, right? But he's just good in a sea of goods, in a cluttered world full of goods. He's, he's a good thing to be put on a shelf with other good things, right? So Christ doesn't necessarily outcompete everything in everyone's heart for the weightiest and deepest affections of our soul. But when God falls in the ranking system in our hearts, other suitors rush in. They flood in to convince you that they, not God, will make you happy. They, not God, are the secret to you being satisfied. Now, you've heard us say often from this pulpit, from this stage, in any class that we've ever taught, that behind every sin is a core unbelief about God. A core unbelief. Which means every sin, every transgression against a person or God is you trying to secure something for yourself that you think God is unable to give you. In our in our case today, we don't really believe God is sufficient as a good. So we graduate beyond God and start hunting for sufficiency, for what is good. And that hunt is looking for nothing more than the secret to our happiness, what will make us happy. Suitors convince us that God is not good enough, so we have to discover good elsewhere. And when we run to these things, people, things, moments, most of our best anthropology today will say that uh, generation X and previous generations are more attached to things and people for happiness. Generation X and forward are more attached to moments, typically moments, as the secret to happiness. The suitors will convince us that God is not enough. And when we believe those suitors, we have made an idol. Capital I. Listen, idols are not what you see in movies. They're not shiny little Shiny little statues, what they are is shiny little marriages and shiny little kids. They're shiny little 
social media presences. There's, there, 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 are, there are other things that don't look like what we imagine when we say the word idol. And we can make anything an idol because our heart's very good at handcrafting idols out of anything that we see, anything that we even think. Idolatry is not bowing down before some wooden statue. It's taking anything, even a good thing, and making it an ultimate thing. Making it an ultimate thing in our life. Because it's these ultimate centerpieces that shape our thoughts, shape our emotions, our behaviors. But they lie. This is what an idol says. If we were to just go idol hunting a little bit. Idols will convince you that they will satisfy you, but they never really do. And you actually know that. You already suspect that. You already suspect that. And you kind of bring that charge back to your heart. This thing never really pays off. Maybe for a second, maybe for a day, maybe for a week, but it never really, really pulls off. So then the idol returns fire by telling you that's because you haven't done enough. You've got to do a little bit more. The carrot's way on the end of the stick. You're not there, but you're almost there. You've got to keep worshiping, which means you, in our world, you have to work a little bit harder. You have to go to the gym a little bit more. You have to post on social media a little bit more. You have to do more things, and then you will finally have the secret to your happiness. At this point, you just haven't done enough. They'll also tell us that they can give us what Christ cannot. That God is good, Jesus is great, but they can't be everything. For that, you will need them. See, idols will tell us that they have the secret to our happiness, but they're liars. And while we're idol hunting, you'll know what an idol is whenever it's ripped from your life. That will be the place that you come unstitched. You just come apart. Why? Because that's where your happiness and your hope is at. We pin our hope and our happiness on that which we worship. There's something, there's a little interesting interchange between Christ and a potential disciple in Matthew 19. Well, you stay where you're at in Philippians, but in Matthew 19, we see this passage where this disciple comes up, wants to follow Jesus. He is a well-behaved man. He is a wealthy man, and he tells Christ everything that he does that is impressive. The young man said to him in verse 20, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Okay, why sad? Why did he leave sad and sorrowful? Well, because to lose his fortune was to lose his hope for any happiness. And to put down his fortune was to put down his happiness was to step into a living hell for him. So the big question, second big question for you is what would devastate your life if it was pulled away from you? Not just make you sad, but what would debilitate you? You, you hear stories about athletes that blow out a knee or blow out an ankle and that's it. And you hear the sad story about how they never really got back. They found some sort of a substance, ended up living on the street. Their idol was removed. Their happiness had left. Hear about husbands that punch the wall because their wife won't listen. For them, the, the secret to their happiness was to be heard, to be in control, to be glorious. And that was being removed. Their idol was being taken away and they lost all those things. And so they exert themselves. It's a panic Wife might turn to drugs when their husband leaves for any reason. Addicts turn to anger and rehab when their drugs are gone. 
parents coming undone when their kids can't hit a baseball off a tee in Little League, people that commit suicide because their 401k took a dump, all of these things. It's a long list, really. The way that humanity comes undone when that which they put their hope and their happiness in is gone. I'm not saying that things shouldn't trouble us, make us sad, make us grieve. But whenever something has debilitated us and our life ends as if our God is gone, that has been an idol. Here's the thing about idols. They're very resistant to being spotted in our own lives. I mean, we're happy to celebrate when they're here, and we definitely grieve when they're gone, but it's really tough for us to see them in our own life. We can see them in other people's lives, right? That's easy. Let's see, that person's got an idol sitting on their shelf right next to Jesus. They got an idol. But it's hard for us to see it in our own life, and we protect them. We shield them. We don't want anyone to touch it. We don't like it when people talk about it. When a sermon is brought up on that specific item, we get a little nervous. Right now, right now, there might be something in your ear telling you, Luke's not talking about me. He's not talking about us right now. He's talking about losers out there that have like real problems. I'm just a hobby for you. It's good, the thing that we do, right? It's not, it's not an issue. Just ignore him, right? And listen, I get that. And you'll listen if your happiness is attached to it. You'll listen. Because to put down the center of your hope and joy will also feel like a death. But what is telling you that it is the secret to your happiness? What threatens devastation if it is gone? If the answer is not Jesus, it's an idol. And you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be happy for long. Right? And you know this. You know it. Here's the good news, though. For all of us idol worshipers in the room, here's the good news. Is that when our ears heard the gospel and our hearts were changed, when we trusted God for the first time and God rescued us and gave us a heart of flesh, taking out our heart, when we became Christians, he found us carrying a bunch of idols, bags and bags and bags of them, carry-ons full. We just had a ton of idols. That's how he found us. And he loved us, a mob of idol worshipers. And this God says to us, not like a carrot on the end of the stick, You don't have to keep doing, 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 doing to get all of me. I'm giving all of myself to you now. Totally despite you. And not like an idol would say, which is, an idol would say, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to forsake you. Christ says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Even when we don't believe that he is good enough and we go searching for other goods, even when we treat Christ like he's just a common piece of furniture in our lives, If you are, in fact, in Christ, it doesn't adjust the level and the volume of his love for you. That's fascinating. He does not gauge his love for you based on your love for him. He doesn't gauge his adoration and his love and his feelings for you based on your performance, based on how impressive you are, based on how great you are at smashing idols in your life. You know, before we even hop off of that, it's probably a valuable side note to be very careful of swapping worldly idols for cleaner, more religious ones, because we could do that just as fast. People can idolize a church. People are always idolizing good speakers or pastors. You can idolize an image of the cross while being detached from the truth of the cross. I've seen people flip out because they worship their Bible instead of trust and learn from their Bible, they, it's, it's, it's as if it's a piece of worship for them. They call that Bibleolatry. It's one thing to love and adore and to trust it. But did you know that you can make an idol just out of a book? 
I remember being in college or when I was a campus minister, putting my Bible on the ground for a moment to do something and have people flip out because they looked at this as a talisman or a magic piece, a ma- a, 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 something more s- spiritually weird. You can do it. It's easy to take even good things, friends, good books, and make idols out of them. Paul is basically telling us his happiness is not tied to this world. Whether this guy has a lot or this guy has a little, his satisfaction is not budging. What is his secret? This is it. His Christ is so big and so beautiful and so immovable that nothing can add or take away from his joy. His joy is centered on something that can't be moved. His joy is centered on someone who is beautiful beyond all beauty. His joy is centered on someone that is so big, he outcompetes every good in the universe with him. And it's this size and this beauty and this immovability of Christ in Paul's life that steadies him through this time in prison because he's writing this from prison. Here's an example. When I, when I proposed to my bride and she said yes, I was the happiest man in the world, the centerpiece of my affection was, was reciprocating love. We were headed towards marriage. It did, the things that were important to me two, works, two weeks earlier, I, I mean, they were still of some value, but it didn't really matter as much anymore. I got a flat tire. I remember, I got a flat tire. I'm whistling. I don't even care. Why? Because I'm getting married. Like, I'm getting married, you know? I remember, uh, like, splitting my shorts and getting grease all over them. I remember, like, my favorite shorts, you know, when I was changing the tire. And I'm still whistling. Why? Because I got the girl. I got the girl. I won. Getting married. Couldn't make me sad. Listen, if you, if you won a billion dollars today in the lottery, a billion, if you, and you didn't have to pay taxes on it. So if you won a lot of money. You got a billion dollars. Would you care if you got a $200 phone bill in the mail? that you weren't expecting. You wouldn't care. You have a billion dollars. Would you care if you got like a, if, if Discount Tire sent you a $200 credit because they overcharged you on a set of tires? You wouldn't care. You might not even cash that thing. Why? Because the centerpiece of all of your joy, that robust fortune in your eyes is not moving. It is yours. It is huge. And it's beautiful to you. Nothing else is going to compete for it. So, In in that frame of thought, Jesus is the centerpiece of Paul's life. The most beautiful beauty that Paul had ever seen, and immovable, nothing could be separate, nothing could separate Paul from this beauty. And because Jesus was so central and so large, no idol could get a foothold. Idols simply lose their grip. His hope was pinned on an unfailing Christ. His hope was nestled in an impenetrable resurrection. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You've heard this passage. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger? Nothing. The whole idea of this passage is nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. By the way, not even your failures. Not even your bad days. Not even your moronic decisions. Nothing. Not even you can get in the way of separating God's love from you. See, before he was Paul, he was Saul, a workaholic, fascinated with climbing the ladder as fast as he could, fascinated with becoming the most legalistic man on the face of the earth, heart full of rage, heart full of murder. And then Jesus changes him. 
Then the gospel comes along and wrecks him. And now we find him in prison, as content as he ever possibly could be. His emoji looks different. He's fine to be ridiculed, fine to be mocked by the guards, fine to be left by his friends, fine to be abandoned, chained, fine to be killed. Why? Because Jesus didn't just change his name from Saul to Paul. He didn't just change his religion from Judaism to Christianity. He changed his heart. He became the centerpiece of all of his affections, and nothing could compete. It was so big and beautiful and immovable that it it plunged everything else right down the drain. So how do we get here? How does this work in real time for you and me? He gives us a piece of this in the very last statement where he says, I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. Right? We've heard this before, right? Can I just say, by the way, this does not mean having a, you could have a bigger bench press or finally get that promotion because of Jesus. I think that's what we do. This is the most quotified piece of, of scripture. It's ripped out of context and it's plastered all over anything from an FCA sweatshirt to a poster to a coffee mug that you could do anything, you could do anything you set your mind to because Jesus is Jesus. That's false, friends. Listen, there's a lot of things you're never going to be able to do. There are some things that are, are impossible to you. Even though Jesus loves you and he adores you, you're never going to throw the football like Tom Brady. Some of you are never going to play the piano very well. Why? It's impossible. You're always going to be lousy at it, right? Some things we just can't do, but that's not even what this is talking about. It's not talking about our achievements in this world. Whenever he says all things, I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me, he's saying I can live through every low and every high through Jesus who gives me strength. Jesus is the one that gives me strength to muddle through abundance and to make my way through lack and need. And I can do all of it because God is so good and so kind and so strong, he strengthens me. He gives me power. Paul's always talking about this, by the way, how his strength comes from Jesus. I'm going to fly through it. Don't don't turn there. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 1 Timothy 1, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4, by the Lord, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I stopped there. There's about a dozen others. A dozen others. Jesus' strength given to Paul allows Paul to be fascinated with Jesus above all things. And the strength of Christ given to Paul allows him to put idols down without picking them back up. Without picking them right back up. We have the same strength. We have the same strength. And I think this is valuable for us because many of us in here, we love Jesus, but we don't have the secret to this happiness. So we spend our lives putting our idols down, but then kind of maybe picking them back up. Or putting our idols down, but picking up brand new idols. But we're constantly juggling idols, new or old, which means we're constantly juggling shame and guilt. I mean, this might be you. Do you love Jesus but love your idols too. Same shelf. Maybe Jesus saves your soul, but your job saves your life. Jesus is good, but your kids or your spouse is best. Jesus has cleansed you, but your image is king. Gospel's great, but money's greater. Here's the truth. When the tide rises and falls for you, and good things come and go, Jesus gives us a strength, a strength, a power to enjoy him when it won't make any sense. 
Jesus gives us strength to not turn to our suitors and our idols when it's so tempting to do so. And when our affections for Christ swell, the voice of our idols shrink. That's, this is the secret to happiness. The happiness that holds us together in any season. When Jesus is the core and the middle, the centerpiece of all of the furniture in our life. The centerpiece of all of our deepest affections, our weightiest dreams and hopes. And I think it brings honesty to our emotions as well. I mean, we can be sad when we lose things and still have joy and happiness be inside of us. We talked about this several weeks ago whenever the, the quarantine and the pandemic was kind of young, how it was possible to have joy and pain in, this, in each other's hands at the same time. How you could be in pain and you can be in suffering and still have joy at the same time. The joy is not the same thing as hilarious laughter. Joy could be this resounding, anchoring truth and trust that God is good, he is before us, and he is for us. Paul, he'd be the first to admit that sorrow comes and goes. He missed his friends. You can tell when you read this letter. He missed his freedom. You can tell when you read this letter. He's not stoic. He's not made of marble. It's just that what centered him was never going to be taken away. So he hurt. He was lonely, and he was sad, and he was joyful at the same time. And if you were here a few months ago, we talked about how that's how we feel at a funeral. When we go to a funeral with someone that we love, someone that was a Christ follower, we're sad. We don't get to spend any more life with them, no more memories with them, besides the ones we've already built. We're sad, but we're joyful because they're in some place that if they had a choice, they wouldn't come back. And we're excited about that. And we hold them at the same time. That's why, that's why funerals are so emotionally exhausting, right? Because we're sad and we're happy at the same time. And we just kind of flip back and forth. It's muddy. And it's beautiful. But friends, an abounding Christ brought himself low for you and me. He faced need and abuse so that you and I would have abundance forever. He found separation from the Father so we never would. And when we trust that this Jesus is the best good in a world of goods, when we trust that this Jesus is the only, ultimate, and will never leave us and will never lie to us, we can find peace and we can find joy in every single circumstance, every single one. Listen, if you're a Christian in here, what I want you to ask yourself is what contends for this treasured spot for your trust and hope? Whatever that is, that is what God is after in you today. Make no mistake, he is here to smash idols. He is very good at that. The gospel's perfect for idol worshipers, but God is very good at smashing idols. And both those statements are true. Friends, listen, if you're here and you are not a Christian, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're looking, maybe you're exploring, can we at least agree on a couple things? I think we can that your whole life has been spent pursuing and chasing the secret of happiness? Your whole life. You've never found it. I know you've never found it. Maybe for a minute, a weekend, a month. Let me just tell you, for you, peace and joy have always been tethered to what kind of day you're having, the circumstances that swirl around you. The gospel says the secret to being content is attached to Christ, not your circumstance. 
So my petition to you is to drop your idols at the feet of the cross, turn from their lies. And any amount of worship that you devoted to that idol, know that its rightful recipient is the king of glory. Chase after him. So what we're going to do now, I'm going to pray here in just a moment, but as you heard me say, you know, before we started this, um, is that we're going to do something a little different today as we change shape to make sense for our community. If you were not here, we're not, obviously we're not singing. None of the equipment's up here. We don't have any musical instruments. We're, we're, we're choosing to do something a little bit different. Um, but I think no less beautiful. And I think it's going to be powerful for us. And before they come up, in fact, if I, if I already spoke to you about coming up and being a part of this, um, leading the rest of the body here in prayer, I want you to go ahead and come up now while I pray for us as a service. So go ahead and come on up now. We'll just do that. Father, I thank you as they're coming up. I pray for this, this church, Lord. Father, that you would help us learn what it means to have a joy in all circumstances. Even this week, I was challenged. Even this week, I'm slamming into hard thing after hard thing after hard thing. And I find myself grumpy. I find myself detached. I find myself angry. I find myself all kinds of things. I carry all kinds of emotions. None of them have joy attached to them. Lord, I know I'm allowed to be angry, and I know I'm allowed to be sad, but I don't know how to maneuver that with joy at the same time. I feel like anytime sadness comes in, joy leaves, or anytime anger or pain comes in, joy leaves. But I know, Father, by watching Paul chained to guards, alone, rejected, he was joyful. That is a secret that I want to learn. But, Father, I know we learn this by your gospel and by petitioning you and begging you for a strength to put our idols down, not pick them back up, for a strength to trust you. And Lord, just to ask you that you would make yourselves big and beautiful in our lives and show us through your passages and remind us through your scripture that you are immovable. You're not going anywhere. You're so good to us. You're so kind and so thoughtful for all of us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.